Well, I left you hanging last week, uh, but today I trust will be informative and uh, at least answer some questions. Divorce and remarriage are certainly delicate topics, sometimes divisive topics, uh, but they're also relevant topics. If Scripture was silent on these issues, which, which it's not, but if it was, we would inevitably invent our own approaches, which would inevitably harm ourselves and others. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, human thought is not the arbiter of truth, but the infallible word is the end of all strife. It is not ours to say what the truth of God must be or what we think it should be or what we would like it to be, but reverently to sit down with open ears and willing heart to receive what God has spoken, end of quote. With the opinions encircling us, it's helpful to remember that human thought is not the arbiter of truth. If we are to think rightly about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, we must reverently sit down with open ears and willing heart to receive God's revealed will in Scripture. God is the arbiter of truth, and we must trust Him. Would you agree that the things uh, most worth doing in life, which yield the greatest rewards, demand courage, sacrifice, hard work, and perseverance? A few months ago, Christine and I hiked up the east face of Champlain Mountain in Acadia National Park uh, to the summit by way of the, the most well-known and challenging route, the Precipice Trail. And the ascent is over 1,000 feet. And it's quite strenuous, and there are places, folks, that if you slip and, and fall, you die. I mean, it's that kind of trail. There are some very interesting parts of the trail. Um, many people just avoid the precipice trail. But Christine and I found that if you're reasonably fit, uh, alert, careful, and persistent, it is a thrilling adventure. Uh, friends, the sense of accomplishment uh, after hiking the precipice trail is satisfying. The view from the summit was spectacular, and the memories of doing it with my dear wife are irreplaceable. But it took some courage, some sweat, and some perseverance to reach the top. Marriage is similar. And my plea to you is this. By the Spirit's power, give your blood, sweat, and tears to defend and cultivate your marriage out of love for God and your spouse for the glory of Christ. Marriage demands courage and sacrifice and hard work and perseverance. And sadly, many quit before the reward. Jesus Christ gave his blood, sweat, and tears. He persevered to gain his great reward, and it was worth it. Where would we be without the love and faithfulness of our beloved bridegroom, Jesus Christ? The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ clings firmly to us, his bride, never to let us go. His loving grip is firm. He, he always jealously protects and preserves us, and, and he loves us. He will not divorce his beloved. This gospel is the power and the motivation for us to give our blood, sweat, and tears to our marriages. Here's a, a quick review of last week. Number one, marriage is profoundly intimate, sacred, and precious to God, is meant for a lifetime, and should always be honored and protected. Jesus said, 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We must honor and we must guard what God has joined together. Number two, Jesus corrected common misinterpretations and misapplications of the law. The scribes and Pharisees used Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, to justify illegitimate divorces, making divorce convenient and numerous, and in some cases mandatory, which disgraced God's intent for lifelong marriage. Number three, Jesus is the authority on God's law, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and he taught for our good because he is good. We look briefly at Matthew 19, 3 through 9, where the Pharisees tested Jesus. They wanted to justify divorce. Jesus wanted to uphold the profound intimacy, sacredness, and preciousness of marriage and how man should not separate what God has joined together. Jesus said to you, but I say to you, thus identifying himself as the preeminent rabbi with the authoritative and conclusive perspective on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And my fourth point was simply my one big plea. Number four, by the Spirit's power, give your blood, sweat, and tears to defend and cultivate your marriage out of love for God and your spouse for the glory of Christ. One more thing before uh, I begin unpacking verse 32. We must keep the gospel in view if we are to rightly discern marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Jesus Christ is the only faithful spouse, folks, who never wrongs or divorces or loses his beloved bride, the church. His love is boundless. His patience is ceaseless. His forgiveness is endless. The cross is the extent to which Christ went to have and to hold his bride forever. And we won't think about marriage, divorce, and remarriage properly until the covenantal faithfulness of Jesus Christ is in our hearts and minds. See, with his blood, his own life, his own blood, Jesus has secured his covenantal union with us. He will have and he will hold us forever because he purchased us with his precious blood. As John taught in John 17, as Jesus taught rather, he, he guards us and he loses none of us. The gospel is the only proper vantage point from which to view the topics of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So let's build upon last week by asking this big question, number five, in continuation from last week, are there biblically justifiable reasons to divorce? And is remarriage ever acceptable? Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So let's zero in on the phrase, except on the ground of sexual immorality. That phrase is important. For the most part, Reformed theologians have historically agreed that sexual immorality is just cause for the offended spouse to seek divorce and to remarry. By saying, except on the ground of sexual immorality, Jesus gave legitimate or lawful grounds to the transgressed spouse to pursue divorce and presumably to remarry. Jesus repeated this one exception again in Matthew 19, verse 9. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality 
and marries another commits adultery. The way that exception is stated seems to allow the transgressed spouse to not only pursue divorce, but to also remarry. In cases of sexual immorality, remarriage for the victimized spouse makes sense for another reason. Under the Old Covenant civil law of national theocratic Israel, sexually immoral spouses were stoned to death, freeing up the offended spouse to remarry. Sexual immorality was a capital crime. We can't lose sight of that. Jesus' exception seems then consistent with this Old Covenant trajectory and principle. Now, the word that Jesus used in verse 32 and in Matthew 19, verse 9, is the Greek word porneia. Porneia is a general term, a wide term, for sexual sin. And it includes fornication, adultery, prostitution, incest, bestiality, and homosexuality. One source called porneia, quote, the broadest term for sexual sin, and then said, it refers to sexual relations with any other person besides one's monogamous heterosexual spouse, end of quote. Jesus permits divorce in cases of porneia. Because sexual immorality is a scandalous breach of the marriage covenant and the one flesh union. But let us think very carefully and apply very carefully. Allows is much different than requires. Permits is much different than commands. Acceptable is much different than best. God allows divorce in cases of sexual immorality. He does not require it. Many people pursue what is acceptable only to miss out on the power of God's grace and joy and pleasure that repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation bring. So Jesus gave only one legitimate reason for divorce in the Gospels, porneia or sexual immorality. However, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of Jesus, Paul gave a second legitimate reason in 1 Corinthians 7.15. And we could ask, why didn't Jesus mention this second reason in the Gospels? My answer is, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, But we know that Jesus allows this second reason because Paul wrote by the divine commission and apostolic authority given to him by Jesus Christ the Lord himself. So we need to listen to Paul as the words of God. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul told the church in Corinth this, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved God has called you to peace. So there it is. The second legitimate reason to divorce is this. If an unbelieving spouse wants to get divorced from their believing spouse, just can't be married to a Christian, the believing spouse should let the unbelieving spouse go. Doesn't mean the unbelieving, or doesn't mean that the believing, the Christian spouse, wants it or even pursues it, they simply allow it because God has called Christians to peace. 
Now, what did Paul mean by the brother or sister is not enslaved? Well, Paul likely meant the believer was no longer bound by their marriage covenant and obligations and presumably was free to remarry. Paul didn't say that explicitly, but a good biblical case can be made for the believing spouse to remarry after being deserted by their unbelieving spouse. So the Bible allows divorce in only two situations, sexual immorality and willful desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Only in those two situations may the victimized spouse remarry. And just to be clear, of course, it's absolutely given in Scripture that remarriage is allowable in cases of death. So we're not talking about that. To my knowledge, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Martin Bootser, Peter Vermigli, Theodore Beza, and I assume many other reformers as well, allowed divorce and remarriage in cases of sexual immorality and willful desertion of an unbelieving spouse. Zacharias Ursinus, who we like around here, allowed for divorce for sexual immorality and willful spiritual desertion as well, but I can't say that he allowed for remarriage. I'm not sure about that point, but my guess is, along with the trajectory of the other reformers, he allowed that as well. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the great 17th century Reformed Confession, says this, quote, in the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Now why say as if the offending party were dead? Little interesting. Well, that's actually an easy answer. Under the old covenant in national uh, theocratic Israel, an adulterer would have been stoned to death and the offended party would be free to remarry. The Westminster Confession of Faith also allows divorce in cases of willful desertion and presumably allows remarriage in that case as well. Pastor Kevin DeYoung notes, all scholars on every side of this divorce and remarriage debate agree that it was a given for first century Jews that remarriage was a valid option after a valid divorce. To be granted a legal separation meant de facto that you were no longer bound to anyone and thus free to remarry. And then DeYoung argues this, and I think it's a solid argument. He says, no one in Jesus' audience was thinking that remarriage wouldn't be an option. If Jesus wanted to teach that remarriage after every divorce was unacceptable, he would have made that new teaching much clearer. Dangerous argument, it's from silence, but I think it's a, a pretty solid one. So remarriage after a legitimate divorce because of sexual immorality or willful desertion by an unbelieving spouse appears to be biblically acceptable. Once again, allows is much different than requires. Permits is much different than commands. Repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, and new patterns of habits of holiness in marriage are often possible, and my friends, are often better options Better options in cases of sexual immorality and maybe even willful desertion, whatever that might look like. 
We are people who thrive on repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. That's, that's our thing with Jesus and the gospel. Now, you may all be thinking, what about physical abuse or domestic violence in marriage? Not comfortable topics. And I can't address this idea adequately now, but let me say this. Listen very carefully. Defining and applying the two biblically justifiable reasons for divorce require careful and biblical thinking and spirit-led shepherding. And I want to say, unrepentant, serial physical abuse and other unrepentant egregious sins may, and I repeat, may, fall under the category of sexual immorality and willful desertion. But elders should be notified and brought into the situation to provide counsel, discernment, and oversight. Formal, you have to listen carefully to these things because they're very important. Formal church discipline is a wonderful gift of protection for the church because its intent is to uncover sin and guilt, deal with the sin and guilt with law and gospel, justice and grace, and to seek repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation for God's glory and the good of his people. God provides elders or shepherds or pastors to his people in order to care for them and in order to protect them. So don't bear the burden of a broken marriage alone. Share it with your shepherds. Don't think through the complexities of marriage, divorce, and remarriage alone. Go to your elder shepherds for counsel, for discernment, for prayer, and really just for practical help. We need others fighting for our marriages. We need accountability lest we fall into egregious sins. If your marriage is struggling for any reason at all, God wants you to seek counsel from your shepherds who understand the difficulties of marriage and who love you and who are called by God in Scripture to care for your soul. If you are being abused, get to a safe place. Take the children, if applicable, and notify your shepherds immediately so that they can help you and your spouse heal and work through these things. Spirit-filled and loving shepherds are such a gift, and they will help you work through the messy and complex details of your situation in a safe and biblical and God-honoring way. I'll end point five with a caution Because of the sinfulness and deceitfulness of the human heart, we must be very careful with exceptions. Very careful. Because just like Jesus' listeners, we are prone to misinterpret and misapply God's word in order to serve our selfish agendas. And so we may take the exception and we may run with it and we may abuse it in order to serve our own selfish agenda. Be very careful with exceptions. Number six. This might be a tough point. Aside from sexual immorality and willful desertion, divorce and remarriage constitute adultery. I think this is obvious in verse 31, and I think it's obvious in other texts, but it's not an easy point to hear, and it's not an easy point to apply. 
This is the point where following Jesus will be extremely difficult and costly for some Christians. Jim Neuheiser says that there is widespread agreement about these two issues. Number one, those who have divorced without proper biblical grounds sin if they remarry someone else. And number two, if a believer divorces a fellow believer without proper biblical grounds, he or she is not free to remarry someone else. There's widespread agreement um, on those two things. So here, here, verse 32 again. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what does Jesus mean by makes her commit adultery? Folks, that phrase overwhelmed me. I mean, I think that was largely the point of my what on earth is this passage saying? Hence, two weeks lot to say on this. I just wasn't clear. Have you ever had to, to say something or preach something to people when you're not really sure about what something? That's difficult. Overwhelming me. It's a tough phrase. And I think the English translation's actually misleading. So see, see if I can't get this, because I think it's, it's become clearer to me. Now can I help you get clear on it is the challenge. The Greek grammar of that phrase, in particular the, vo- the verb poie, or makes, puts the husband doing the divorcing in the active. He is making her. He is responsible. That, that's, that's the sense of the verb. The verb moikuthenai, or commit adultery, is actually in the passive The wife is passive in this verse. The Greek is difficult, but since the husband doing the divorcing is in the active and the wife being divorced is in the passive, Jesus presumably means that the innocent wife is suffering her husband's divorce, which is an act of adultery against her. It's not that the victimized wife is all of a sudden universally guilty of adultery because her husband divorced her. Illegitimately, that doesn't seem right or reasonable to think. And some say that this phrase assumes the wife's remarriage, which they assume is inevitable and therefore would constitute her adultery. But you see, her marriage is not inevitable, especially considering a godly woman may hear this and not get remarried. Yet the phrase is so dogmatic, so universal, he makes her commit adultery. So what did Jesus mean? Jesus likely meant that the husband, by illegitimately divorcing his wife, is actually committing adultery against her by his act of divorce. And certainly his remarriage would constitute adultery. That's plain in the text. That's Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 16, plain as day, which I'll read for you in a bit, and you'll see how clear it is. The people hearing Jesus preach this would have been shocked at his strict interpretation and application of the law because it was so drastically different from the scribes and Pharisees and how they interpreted and applied the law. And I actually think that 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 strengthens the case for the interpretation that I'm giving you. Verse 32, Jesus was condemning many as adulterers, 
as he did in verses 27 through 30 on the topic of lust. The, the entire Sermon on the Mount essentially um, was exposing these egregious sins in the hearts and lives of his listeners. It's not an easy sermon. It, it goes right to the heart and exposes all kinds of wickedness in the human heart. Jesus was essentially calling everyone who sought divorce for illegitimate reasons adulterers, which is not what they wanted to hear, but it was what they needed to hear. In order for them to understand the severe extent of the law and their their desperation for a savior, for someone to, to save them. This interpretation that I'm introducing seems very consistent with the several other biblical texts on divorce. Matthew 19, 9, listen carefully, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. There you have it. Mark 10, verses 11 and 12, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Luke 16, verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, I think Jesus' exception of sexual immorality in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19 can actually be assumed in Mark 10 and Luke 16, which omit the exception. Some have the exception, some don't have the exception. So then sexual immorality and willful desertion aside, we're putting those aside here, if a husband or wife illegitimately divorces their spouse and remarries, uh, and remarries they are committing adultery against their spouse and with their second spouse. God considers illegitimate divorce adultery and remarriage after illegitimate divorce adultery. That was radical for Jesus' listeners to hear. It exposed sin and guilt in his listeners. I think Reverend William Luck summarizes this perspective effectively. He said this, thus, in sum... The one who is divorcing without the cause of fornication is causing his wife to be adulterized. Or, the one who is divorcing without the grounds of fornication is making his wife to suffer adultery. Or simply, when he groundlessly divorces her, he makes her suffer adultery. He has broken his vows to her to care for her. End of quote. And I think that's a reasonable understanding of verse 32. It's like Jesus was saying, he makes her an adulterized woman, making him, because of his unfaithfulness, guilty of adultery. Jesus was turning the entire first century debate over divorce and remarriage on his head and condemning those who trivialized marriage by convenient and illegitimate divorce. Well, what about that phrase, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery? Listen closely. Because of the exception clause earlier, it seems that this in some way refers to the woman illegitimately divorced, which could mean the woman illegitimately divorced by her husband or the woman who illegitimately divorced her husband. 
You see how some of this gets very dicey to, to interpret it? All right. I'm not sure. Okay? Just put that out there. I'm really not sure. I want to be firm in my preaching and dogmatic as much as it aligns with God's word. I'm just not sure. But I think it is reasonable to assume that after Jesus mentioned a husband divorcing his wife for an illegitimate reason and being guilty of adultery, it follows that marrying a woman who illegitimately divorced her husband would also be adultery. Are you following me? And if you're not, please don't be hard on yourself because as I was reading good resources of clear people that are reading, I'm like, I gotta go back and read this again. I'm still not sure. So if you're not getting it all, listen to the sermon maybe 40 times. It'll at least increase you know, online the, the people who listen. Okay, anyway, that's selfish. Take that out of the sermon, edit that out. All right, so saints, in many situations today, inside and outside the church, divorce and remarriage constitute multiple acts of adultery. And though divorce and remarriage are complex topics, Jesus was clear on this. William Hendrickson effectively summarized what Jesus said. Here, by means of a few simple words, Jesus discourages divorce, refutes the rabbinical misinterpretation of the law, reaffirms the law's true meaning, censures the guilty party, defends the innocent, and throughout it all upholds the sacredness and inviolability of the marriage bond as ordained by God. That is a powerful paragraph. I'll conclude point six with this summary. Remarriage for reasons other than the two sanctioned reasons given in Scripture is adultery in God's eyes. Isn't that the inevitable conclusion if we fairly interpret Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 16? So let me end by asking this important question, number seven, what does this mean for us? How do we apply this? How how should we hear this? How should we respond to this, especially considering the pervasiveness of divorce in the church today? Well, we all need to begin with the law and gospel. From where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus explaining God's law and exposing in his listeners and in all of us radical sin and adultery. Who among us hasn't lusted? Who among us hasn't broken our marriage vows? Who among us is always faithful to God and our spouse day in and day out without fail in everything? Who? Would you like to stand and come up and tell us how to do it? No takers. None. We are all serial adulterers who need to be transformed by the gospel. And this shouldn't surprise you because several weeks ago I said that we're all murderers. We are all entirely corrupted by sin and filled with lust, sensuality, adultery, gluttony, materialism, idolatry, covetousness, greed, anger, murder, and more. We're only getting started at how bad you are and how bad I am. 
We, we must let the, the law do what the law does, what it should do. It exposes our sin, it exposes our guilt, and it shows us our desperate need of Jesus Christ. And when it comes to divorce and remarriage, if you haven't been divorced and you're sitting here and you're holding a stone ready to throw it as you stigmatize divorced people, put it down and look to the adultery in your own heart. And how you have been unfaithful in marriage, unfaithful to Christ, and look to the gospel of Jesus Christ, who alone is the faithful spouse, who alone chooses and stands there before you and does not throw the stone. We must not consider ourselves the standard of righteousness, brothers and sisters, when it comes to marriage, but we must revere Christ, who alone is righteous and faithful. The famous preacher, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, once described the gospel in these terms, and I want you to listen closely. It's a long quote, but it is beautiful. Just listen. In our salvation, we were married to him. He it was who took the vows first of all. I, Jesus, take thee, sinner, to be my bride, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful Savior and bridegroom in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in faithfulness and in waywardness for time and for eternity. And then we looked up to him and said, I, sinner, take thee, Jesus, to be my Savior and my Lord, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be thy loving and faithful bride in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow for time and for eternity. Thus we took his name. We were misworldling. We were married to him and now bear his name, for Christian means Christian. When we realize the true meaning of this, we understand how important it is to keep his name spotless before the world. And then Barnhouse continues, Christ is the faithful one. We are the ones who slip into flirtation and then into adultery with the world. We are loved by Christ Jesus, but we are drawn aside by our desires and seduced from our love of Christ. Such a seduction is the worst of all transgressions since it is the sin against the love of Christ. He is faithful to the end, loving us when we were unlovely and taking us through all steps of our wandering to the place of redemption and final attachment to himself forever. End of quote. Saints, how often we slip into flirtation and then into adultery with the world. We are all adulterers. At least in our heart, but our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, remains faithful to us and keeps us in covenantal union with him by his grace and by his spirit. If we don't start with the law and gospel and how it humbles us, how will we pursue repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation for the glory of God and the rescue of many marriages? We won't. Without the law and gospel, we will promote and proliferate broken marriages and divorce. We need the law. We need the gospel. We need them doing what they're supposed to do. Singles and kids. Singles and kids. Teenagers included. Someday you might get married. 
Defend and cultivate your marriage and guard yourself against divorce now as a single. By, number one, submitting yourself completely to Christ in every single area of life. Two, devoting yourself to a word and sacraments local church where you can be loved and shepherded and nurtured and held accountable. And three, pursuing your personal holiness with unrelenting fanaticism by the leading and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Prepare yourself even now, singles and kids, prepare yourself even now for perseverance in marriage through godliness. If you never get married, so some of you won't, some of you or older, single, no marriage. Listen, you still must champion marriage by pursuing godliness and encourage and fighting for the marriages of your brothers and sisters that you love. Married couples, by God's grace and spirit at work in you, be faithful to Christ and your spouse because Christ has been faithful to you, his spouse. By God's grace and spirit at work in you, show your gratitude for God's grace by giving your blood, sweat, and tears to be faithful to God and your spouse. Be faithful because you want to express your thankfulness to God and you want to exalt the name of Christ. Work on your marriage. Invest in your marriage. Invest time, energy, love, forgiveness, and care. Seek out wise counsel from from your shepherds and other godly couples. Love your spouse simply because you want your covenantal commitment to display the faithfulness of Christ. It's about him, not you. All of your life is that way. A couple fully committed to glorifying Christ will not get divorced. Let me say that again. Listen very carefully. I've selected the the words carefully. A couple fully committed to glorifying Christ will not get divorced. Divorced people. If you are believers, you are not second-rate Christians because you're divorced. (laughs) You are beloved We deeply love you, and God does. You belong with us. We belong with you. You belong, and your divorce is simply part of your redemption story. God's sweet grace and forgiveness is for you as much as it is for the rest of us who have egregiously sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. We... we, who have not been divorced are not the measure of faithfulness. Christ alone is the measure of faithfulness. He's the one that's faithful, not us. Your divorce, it does not put you in some marginal position or group over there inside the church. We are all broken, all desperate for God's mercy and grace. And so I just challenge you to open yourself up to us, share your story with us so that we can see God's sovereign grace at work in you and that we can praise God together at his work of redemption. And so now perhaps in this group you were adulterized by a sexually immoral spouse or abandoned by an unbeliever. Have you forgiven them? 
have you forgiven them? Knowing your own sin, your own guilt, and the lavish forgiveness of God, have you humbly forgiven them? Have you sought reconciliation? Have you even confessed your sin against them? As I say this next phrase, or this next part rather, please understand, I may know that you're divorced, but likely I know almost nothing about your story and the circumstances. I don't really need to know. And for the majority of you out there, I don't know what led to your divorce. I don't. We've probably never talked about it. I can think of one person I think that I've talked to about their situation. And I don't really need to know. So it is possible that some of you were illegitimately divorced and also illegitimately remarried and are only now, maybe in this sermon, realizing that God's word calls that adultery. And this might be the most difficult sermon that you've ever heard. This may arouse new thoughts and feelings of guilt and new questions for you as you contemplate your adultery that you perhaps have never thought of until now. Three simple things for you. Listen carefully. Number one, your marriage has ended. Your first marriage. God does not consider you still married to your first spouse. You are not continuing to live in an adulterous relationship by staying married to your second spouse. Uh, Scholar Craig Blomberg noted this, quote, there is no indication here that a second marriage, even following an illegitimate divorce, is seen as permanently adulterous. Divorced Christians who have remarried should not commit the sin of a second divorce to try to resume relations with a previous spouse, but should begin afresh to observe God's standards by remaining faithful to their current partners, end of quote. So that said, initially, your illegitimate divorce and illegitimate remarriage were adultery. Now, out of that first very difficult point come two other significant points. Number two, grieve with heartfelt sorrow that you have offended God by your unlawful divorce and unlawful remarriage. Confess that to God. God, I didn't know at the time. I was so foolish. I I, I didn't even know your holy word. And repent of your adultery and receive God's sweet forgiveness and purification in Christ. Your sin and guilt are not beyond the redeeming and restoring reach of God's amazing grace in Christ. Trust that you are forgiven. And three, by the Spirit's power, give your blood, sweat, and tears to defend and cultivate your second marriage. Out of love for God and your current spouse for the glory of Christ, live for God's glory in your second marriage like you should have lived in your first marriage. Be faithful. Be faithful now in your current marriage because you are grateful to have received God's grace in Christ. Is this not the glorious redemption story for each one of us? Brothers and sisters, I have not said all that needs to be said. Uh, this is a, this, there's a lot to be said on this topic, but I hope that what I said was faithful to God's word and helpful to you, God's 
saints. And I also hope that my tone uh, shows my deep love for all of you. Maybe I didn't get it exactly right, but I hope at least it does a little bit. Uh, The mercy, grace, and forgiveness of God, brothers and sisters, are immense, beyond what we could imagine. My mentor, Bob Hopper, he died of a massive heart attack a few years ago, I think now. Uh, Bob meant, meant a lot to me and was just really loved me and fed into me. And he would tell us at North Park Church um, relatively frequently, cheer up, you're worse than you think, <laughs> but the gospel is better than you know. And I, I just think we need that because all of us sitting here are way worse than we could ever imagine. And Jesus is way better. Forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration. The pardon of God in Christ. This is our beloved Christ. And so I just want to end by saying, let us delight together, brothers and sisters, and honor him for his faithfulness.